Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, continuing our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through this amazing letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. And we've come to a hot-button issue. I like this picture, the the grace-filled Christian responses to the things that divide us. There are difficult doctrines in Scripture, and these are issues that are discussed and debated among different Christian teachers and Christian theologians and just Christians in general. We're all entitled to our opinion. However, at the same time, we are also all responsible to form our opinion based upon God's truth. And so that's what we want to do. We want to have grace-filled responses to one another as we discuss and look into difficult issues. pray that you'll have grace towards me, that I'll have grace towards you, that God will keep us united even when there are points where we may disagree from time to time. I think it's healthy to have discussion and debate among Christians who respect and love one another with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So we come to the difficult doctrine of unconditional election here in Romans 9, 14 through 18. Now, as a Christian, we all believe in election. The the word is there in the text. Uh, Whether you are an Arminian or whether you're a Calvinist or whether you're somewhere in between the two, we all believe in election because the Bible talks about God's election. What we disagree on is upon what basis does God choose those who are going to be saved? The Bible clearly says that God chooses, but upon what basis does God choose is the issue. Now, among Calvinists and Arminian theologians, there is common ground. There are certain things we can agree upon. We can agree what election is not based upon on several counts. Number one, Calvinists and Arminian theologians agree that election is not based upon physical descent from Abraham. Hey, all right, we got a point of agreement there. Because that is Paul's main point here in introducing the doctrine of election in Romans chapter 9, is to explain why is it that Israel, God's chosen nation, is not composed of elect individuals? How can we have so many Israelites who have not believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved? So he's dealing with that issue here in Romans 9 through 11. And so his main point is, there in the opening verses, that just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that you are elect of God for salvation. And so Paul made that point, and you see that in verse 11, as Paul is talking about God's choice of Jacob and not Esau, these brothers who were twins. Paul says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So there's our word election, God's purpose. And notice the next part, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So both Calvinist and Arminian theologians can agree that not only is it not based upon physical descent from Abraham, because where we have Jacob and Esau, both descendants of Abraham, through Isaac, and yet also we agree that it's not based upon works. It's not based upon human merit. So Christian theologians, we, we read the text, we understand Paul's point on those two issues of what election is not based upon those two things. However, there are those who believe in conditional election, and those would be largely in the Arminian camp on this issue. And conditional election believes that God bases his choice of who is going to be saved based upon his foreknowledge 
of those who are going to exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, knowing all things, is able to know beforehand who among all of the people he has created is going to choose freely to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and those are the ones whom God elects to salvation. That's conditional election. The election is conditioned upon human faith. I believe this passage is teaching unconditional election, which is the normal position of Calvinists. And it all kind of coheres with the other points of Calvinism and the other points of Arminianism. They kind of come as a, as a set. Although, you know, some people pick and choose certain ones that they like. Today, we're focused on the doctrine of election and what I believe the text is teaching, unconditional election. Now, not only did we have that there in verse 11, where we have, before they had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, we also have verse 15, which we looked into last week. Romans 9.15, I think, is good evidence for unconditional election, because Paul is, is answering the question, the charge, that it doesn't seem fair that God would choose some people to be saved and not choose other people to be saved, that if God has the power to save people and it's based upon his choice, well then, he, he's got to save everybody. And so the question is, is there injustice on God's part? How can God love Jacob but hate Esau, and how is that fair? How is he treating Jacob and Esau fairly in that? And Paul's answer in verse 15 is that God said to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Notice, God did not say, I will have mercy on the one who has faith in me. He does not say, I will have compassion on the one who has faith in me. He could have said that. But Paul specifically pulls out this verse that we looked at in detail last week to point out that God's choice of election is not based upon anything that we do or have done or ever will do. But instead, it is a mysterious choice that God doesn't even have to explain it to us. That when God was showing mercy to Moses, God wanted Moses to know, and through Moses, who would write down the words of God, to let all mankind know, that when God was showing mercy to the people of Israel and not judging them for their sin of idolatry with the golden calf, and when God was showing mercy to Moses in granting his prayer request to see the glory of God, that this was only done because God wanted to. And you say, well, well why did God want to? Why did God want to show mercy to Moses, but on the other hand, not show mercy to Pharaoh? And when you start getting into that level of why, the Bible says you just don't know. You'd like to know, but you just don't know. And that's hard for us. We are people who are rational people. We like answers, and, and we come to God, and we, we think God should be able to explain this to us. And, and really, God should explain this to us. He has a, a duty to explain this to us. And as we read through Romans 9, what you're going to find out is that, well, that's just not true. God does not have a duty to explain this to us. And that's even harder for us to hear. So this is a difficult passage for us here in Romans 9, 14 through 18, and the whole chapter. Last week we got as far as verses 15 and 16, looking into the nature of mercy. And today we're going to look at verses 17 and 18, which actually goes even further.
I told you last week, if you thought last week was hard, wait till we get to verses 17 and 18. These are the real doozies. So with that in mind, why don't we have a word of prayer together before we look at them? Lord, we do thank you for the privilege of gathering in the name of Jesus Christ with his spirit in and among us to be able to learn from sacred scripture the truth that you have revealed. Lord, the things revealed belong to us and to our children. And we're so thankful for the children that are here who can learn these things from a young age. But Lord, the things that are hidden, the things that are mysterious, those are the secret things that you have, have kept known to yourself for your reasons, and we trust you. Lord, as we look into these verses today, Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech, that you'd give us all ears to hear, eyes to see, that we would understand as far as we are able to understand, and that we would trust in where we cannot yet understand. Lord God, we pray that you would preserve the unity of the church and the bond of peace and that no doctrine would divide us from one another, but that we would lay down our lives for the sake of the church. And may that spirit prevail in any controversy, whether doctrinal or practical or personal, that this church might ever face. And may this not be true only for our local congregation, but may that spirit of pursuing the truth in love prevail among all of the churches, so that we might be able to discuss and debate, not with selfishness or ambition or pride, but with humility of service, service to you and service to one another. May the world know that we are Christians by our love. Amen. All right, so we're looking at Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, and I'd like to just read that paragraph for you as we then focus in on the second half of it. Follow along in your Bibles as I read it out loud. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then... He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Here we get to God's right to judge. And you have the introduction into this text of that word harden, that God has the right to harden whomever he wants to harden. That is a tough statement. Now, Paul gives us another scriptural reference. Throughout this section, throughout the first 17 verses of Romans, we've been looking into this by contrasting the elect with the non-elect, Isaac and Ishmael, Esau and Jacob, Moses and Pharaoh. So last week we looked at Moses, the chosen one of God, chosen for salvation, chosen to be a prophet, chosen to be the mediator of the covenant, and also the opposite of Moses, the unchosen, the non-elect, Pharaoh, whom God says he raised up for the very purpose of showing his own power through the judgment that God brought upon Egypt through Pharaoh's hardness of heart. Now, this is a very strong assertion of God's rights 
and God's freedom. In fact, Paul's argument here is so strong that some, strong in, in the sense of, you know, for, uh, not logically strong, that's not my point. It is logically strong. But my point is, is that the point that he's making is so strongly offensive that some commentators actually criticize Paul's arguments as being weak or even immoral. And some people suggest that these verses were not actually written by Paul, but were inserted by someone else. Now, there's no evidence for any such textual corruption at this point. It's, it's completely based upon the idea that, that what is written here cannot possibly come from God's Holy Spirit. So it shows you just how strong some people's aversion is to Paul's argument here. Even Christian commentators publish public criticisms of Paul's argumentation as weak or even immoral. Now, as we looked into God's right to show mercy, to whom he wants to show mercy in the person of Moses, we were careful to define mercy. Mercy is not receiving the penalty of justice that your actions have deserved. That's the biblical definition of mercy. When God does not give you the justice, the punishment for the sins that you have committed that you deserve, that is the mercy of God. And so talking about deserved mercy is nonsense. Well, if we're talking about what is deserved, we're talking about punishment. If you don't get the punishment, we're talking about what is not deserved. So when we're in the field of mercy, get the concept of being merited out of your mind. Demanding mercy is therefore nonsense. There is no claim upon God's mercy that can be made. That if you want to demand something, you can demand justice. You cannot demand mercy. Mercy has to be given. Mercy has to be freely bestowed. It's not something that can be demanded. And I'd like to also make this point, once again, in review, that being jealous of God's mercy is not righteous. Being jealous of God's mercy is unrighteous. Let me try to illustrate the principle of unmerited gift, unmerited favor, and mercy. I'll do it with grace. Grace and mercy are related in this way. Grace is the positive of mercy. So if you all owed me $10,000 each, and I chose to forgive some of you of that debt, that would be mercy. Let me turn it around and talk about grace. If I came this morning and I decided, you know, I've got too much money. I don't know what to do with it. So I'm just going to pick out five people in church and I'm going to give them $10,000 each. And I come this morning and I give Jerry $10,000 and I give Charlie $10,000 and I give Viola $10,000. And I do that for five people and it gets known. People start talking about it. You know, pastor gave $10,000 to five people in church. Well, some of you might start to wonder, well, why did he pick out those five people? Uh, why didn't he give it to me, for example? Um, you know, I, I think I've been in the church a long time. I've done a lot of service. And, and you know, I, I've really been an encouragement to Pastor Timothy. I, I think, you know, I'm as deserving of that $10,000 as, as anybody else that he gave the money to. Well, that's the whole point, that it wasn't deserved. I didn't give it to people who I owed it to. I, I gave it because I wanted to give it. And, and that's my own money, and I can do with it what I want. And so to be jealous of what other people are given is not righteous. That comes from 
envy. That comes from sin. And so a lot of people, they'll look at God's generosity and they'll have an evil eye, as Matthew chapter 20 talks about with God's generosity. They say, well, well, it's not fair that God would give that to them and, and wouldn't give that to me. Well, it's not about fairness. It's about generosity. It's about grace. It's about mercy. And so keep that in mind as we're going through the discussion. I think if you can keep a biblical definition of mercy and a biblical definition of grace and, and separate justice and fairness from the concept of mercy and grace, then it'll help you to process what Paul is saying here. And you'll recognize it's not God who is immoral in reasoning thus, but it is mankind who is immoral in accusing God of injustice on his part. So, not only does God have the right to show mercy, but Paul is going to double or even triple down on his point of election here with Pharaoh, showing that God also has the freedom to reject Esau. God has the freedom to choose Jacob. God has the freedom to reject Esau. He can do what he wants with sinful people. Now, Pharaoh is our example. You see the quotation there from Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. Now, don't get confused, because Romans 9, 17 is where Paul is quoting Exodus 9, 16. So you can see how that could get confusing. But let's go back to Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. Once again, I encourage you young people to pay attention in Sunday school, learn these Old Testament stories well, and I encourage you, not as young people, to keep on reading the Old Testament. And don't leave that part of the Bible out. I love our Bible reading plan that we have in our bulletin. It takes you through the whole Bible in a year, and it's not just New Testament. It's, it's going back and reading all parts of Scripture for all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness, and especially these chapters here in Exodus. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, is in the midst of the plagues that God is bringing down upon the nation of Egypt because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Now, Exodus 9, 16 is the sixth confrontation that Moses and his brother Aaron are having with Pharaoh. So he's come before Pharaoh five times. This is the sixth time. And each time Pharaoh's hardened his heart. And each time God has brought a plague of judgment upon Egypt. And let's uh, read the context here starting in verse 13. Which in my Bible has the title, The Seventh Plague of Hail. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Here's, here's where it gets started, uh, our quotation here. For by now... I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as has never been in Egypt 
from the day it was founded until now. And he goes on and describes the destruction of that hail. So God speaks to Pharaoh through his prophet, Moses, and his mouthpiece, Aaron. And he tells him, you know, I've only tolerated you this far. I've only allowed you to remain as king of Egypt and your people to abide because I have more miracles that I want to demonstrate my power through your unbelief. So God says, I could have wiped you out by now. It's not like my power is weak and that these are the only things I can do and so I've thrown everything I have at you. No, Pharaoh, I can do a lot more and I can do a lot worse. And this is a warning to Pharaoh. God's purpose in making himself known through judgment is a prerogative that God has. God has the right to judge sinners. If you don't accept that, then the Bible's going to be a hard book to understand. God has the right to judge sinners. Now, let's back up a little bit because this idea of the hardening of heart is key to Paul's argument, and it's not actually in this verse. Exodus 9.16 doesn't say anything about hardening of heart, right? You can look at it. There's nothing about hardness of heart there. However, when you read the context, the chapters surrounding Exodus 9.16, you find out that hardness of heart is a huge idea here in the Exodus account. In fact, of the 25 uses of that phrase in the Old Testament, hardness of heart, 18 of them are used of Pharaoh. 18 of 25 of the uses of hardness of heart in the whole Old Testament are used of this Pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, as a side note, some people are curious as to who the historical pharaoh of the Exodus might have been. And despite that voice of Charlton Heston that's in your ears that is saying, Ramses, it probably wasn't Ramses. That's a late date for the Exodus, and it's not likely that 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 was the name of this pharaoh. From our knowledge of history at this current time, most likely we're looking at Amenhotep II, it's also very possible it was Neferhotep I. When you get back into that time period, that far in ancient history, it's pretty difficult to get timelines and chronologies to line up. But those are both good candidates, Amenhotep II or Neferhotep I. But the Bible doesn't even name him. It doesn't do him the honor of recording his name in Scripture. He's just the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. Now, If you back up in Exodus to chapter 4, back up to Exodus chapter 4 with me, the first time that this phrase hardness of heart is used of this Pharaoh is in Exodus chapter 4 verse 21. Here Moses is getting ready to return to Egypt as God has commanded him after his encounter at the burning bush. And in verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And he goes on and gives further prophecies and instructions. The question is, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Now, 
You talk to most any Christian on the street and you ask him that question. You remember the story of the Exodus and you remember how God sent the plagues on Egypt and Pharaoh wouldn't listen to Moses. Who do you think hardened Pharaoh's heart? Most people would say, well, Pharaoh did. You know, Pharaoh hardened his heart so he wouldn't listen to God's messenger and, and so God brought all the judgments on. They would say, well, wait a second. Go back and look at what the Bible says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I didn't write that verse. A Calvinist didn't write that verse. Moses wrote this verse of what God said to him before he even went to go talk to Pharaoh. In fact, ten times from this verse in chapter 4, verse 21, up through chapter 14, verse 8, God says, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ten times. There are three times, three times that the text says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That's in Exodus 8.15, 8.32, and Exodus 9.34, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then the rest of the times, you said there's 18, so that's 10 and 3. What about the other five? The other five times it just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened, which doesn't tell us who hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so the answer to the question of who hardened Pharaoh's heart is God did and Pharaoh did. They both did. And you say, well, how's that work? I don't know. I like a poem that I shared with our philosophy adventure class in homeschool a little while back called Self-Knowledge. And self-knowledge was supposed to be this, you know, wonderful axiom from ancient Greek philosophy. The, the height of knowledge was self-knowledge. But Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who wrote that poem, he was a Christian, and he was skeptical of self-knowledge. He said, Canst thou make thyself? Perhaps you could know what you yourself had made. I didn't make a human being. I am a human being. God is the one who has made human beings. So I don't know everything there is to know about how the human heart works, how are decisions made, what is the seat of desire, how free is the human will, how does the Spirit of God interact with the human will. These are mysterious areas, very difficult to understand. But I do know the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I do know the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It says both. Both are true. How both are true? Well, we'll leave that for when we understand things better by and by. For now, we are seeing things dimly through a mirror. Then we'll see things face to face. So I think we'll understand this better someday. But for now, we just have to accept what the Bible says about this. Now, there's other uses of this phrase, hardness of heart, throughout the Old Testament. That's used of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, who would not allow Israel to pass through his land. And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30, For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. So it wasn't just Pharaoh, but God also hardened another king's heart. And for a purpose. It was because God wanted the people to be destroyed. He wanted to judge the king of Heshbon and his people, and so God hardened the king's heart. You say, well, wow, 
doesn't sound fair. Poor King Sihon of Heshbon, he didn't have a choice in the matter. No, he had a choice. But you said God hardened his heart. Yes, God hardened his heart. And so he didn't have a choice. No, he had a choice. Joshua's conquest also went against kings with hardened hearts. At Joshua chapter 11, verse 20, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy. Hear that? In order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed. God hardened their hearts so that they would not receive mercy. That's what the text says. Now, this desire of God to make his power known through the destruction of the nations of these kings who hardened their hearts against God's word and against God's warning, there's four different words that are used to describe this. It's not just one Old Testament word for hardness of heart. There's a word that means to grow firm or strong. There's a word that means to make heavy or weighty. There's another word that means actually to make hard. And then there's a fourth word about being strong or bold or stout. So all those words are used in different places to refer to what we translate as hardness of heart. And so the common idea among these words is you kind of put them together and get the, the semantic range is it's a strong, heavy, bold resistance of God in the heart. And the Bible says that God hardens whomever he wants. If he wants to make someone strong, bold, and heavy in their resistance to God, he does it. To whomever he wants. This phrase is also used in the New Testament, obviously, since Paul is using it here in Romans chapter 9. And there's two different New Testament words that are used to describe hardness of heart, or at least two. But let's go on. Let's, let's go back to Romans chapter 9. What Paul does in both of these cases, both with Moses and then with Pharaoh, is to pull out the Old Testament scripture, to quote it, verse 15, the verse on Moses, verse 17, the verse on Pharaoh, and then in verses 16 and 18, he pulls out the principle. He makes the application of the text. Now, when God says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Well, God's purpose was accomplished. That God wanted to build his fame as the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, having all power to judge anyone, anywhere, at any time. And this purpose was accomplished. Some great examples from Scripture. Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. These are the words of Rahab who was living in Jericho. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. So the people of Jericho, they were trembling in their booties when they heard that the Israelites and their God had come to their city because they had heard the fame of the Lord Yahweh of Saboeth. Hundreds of years later, we have another account among the Philistines. Woe to us, the Philistines said, 
Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? They're still polytheists, so they think of the God of Israel as being many gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every kind of plague, every sort of plague in the wilderness. So God had a purpose for why he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and that purpose was accomplished. Now you say, well, Paul, that hardly answers my objection that there's injustice on God's part. It just doesn't seem right that God could harden anyone's heart that he wants to, despite what you say. Verse 18, Paul makes his conclusion from these verses that he's quoted, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So this brings up questions, right? This brings up further questions. Paul's answer doesn't really satisfy all of our questions. And so one of the questions that arises from these verses is, of course, what about free will? What do these verses mean for human free will? If Paul says it doesn't depend on human will, on human exertion, where does free will come in? And so when we talk about the concept of free will, you have to ask, what do you mean by that, right? We have to get definitions of terms. Everyone talks about free will, but to actually define what free will is is, is not that easy. Some people will come up with the definition that it means that your actions are not controlled by anything outside of yourself. Well, what does it mean to be outside of yourself? What is the self? What is outside of the self? What does it mean to be controlled? These are things that are difficult philosophical issues that mankind has been wrestling with for forever. And so instead of getting caught in the philosophical weeds of our own reasoning and our own understanding, let's go to what the Bible says and say, what does the Bible say about the human will? And surprisingly, the Bible does not talk about the freedom of the will. People talk about free will, God doesn't talk so much about free will. When you study the will in Scripture, what you find is the bondage of the will. The Bible talks a lot about the slavery of the human will to sin. In Romans chapter 8, we are studying through, and, and Paul said, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot submit themselves to the law of God. They are not even able to do so. So when we're talking about free will, the important idea is that there's a lot of things that we're not able to do. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I very much appreciate his writings and his preaching on this subject throughout all of the letters, he had a great quote that I'd like to share with you. There are 10,000 things the will is free to do, but in many fields the human will is not free. The old man cannot choose to be young. The sick man cannot choose to be well. The slow man cannot choose to be a champion runner. The moron cannot choose to be intelligent. The world may mark your report card and say you get an A for effort, but you will still fail in many things because you are simply not able in spite of all your choosing. In all these fields, we can see the failure of the human will. There is a concept of freedom that the Bible talks about when regards to our will. And it's what Jesus Christ was referring to when he said, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. 
freedom of the will is freedom from the bondage of sin. That's biblical free will. Freedom from the bondage of sin. And how do we get that kind of free will? Notice the Bible doesn't say everyone has that free will. No. You receive a free will when the truth sets you free. The power of the truth to set the human will free from its bondage, its slavery, to corrupting and evil desires is what we need to focus on when we're talking about free will. One of the corollary doctrines of Calvinism that goes along with unconditional election is the doctrine of total depravity, which I think is better termed total inability. Total inability means that the human will is not free to submit to the law of God. Many things that the human will is free to do, but it is not free to submit to the law of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. You are free to jump off the cliff, but having jumped off the cliff, you are no longer free to ameliorate the consequences of jumping off the cliff. Mankind was created with the ability to jump off the moral cliff, and we did In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And so we cannot now choose not to have the consequences of that fall. The consequences of that fall is that we are now bound in sin, unable to do anything to save ourselves. And that it is only an act of God's mercy, God's free will, that is able to take away the consequence of our slavery to sin. This is the truth. There's really two important truths that you have to keep in mind if you want to understand the human will and God's sovereignty. The first we've been talking about, total inability. You've got to understand total inability if you're going to be able to make sense of how God's unconditional election accords with human will. Total inability has to be factored in there. Secondly, the important truth that you must also keep in mind is that God ordains the means as well as the ends. Sometimes when we think about the foreordination of God, we only think that God is foreordaining the end, the end goal of salvation, if we're talking about God's sovereignty and salvation. But God does not just foreordain the end, which is personal salvation, but God foreordains the means And what are the means of personal salvation? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The means of salvation is that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The means of salvation is how can they call upon the one whom they have not heard? And so God ordains the means, the preaching of the gospel, the hearing of the gospel, The belief in the gospel is a part of God's foreordination. If you keep in mind those two truths, I think it will help you to wrestle your way through a difficult doctrine. Here's an important thought that is drawn from Calvin's Institutes, his major work of theology. John Calvin wrote, If the free will of God in doing good, is not impeded because he necessarily must do good. Catch that? 
God must do good. God cannot do evil. Does that mean that God's will is not free because he must do good? That would be a ludicrous thing to say, right? Obviously not. God's will is not impeded. The freedom of God in doing good doesn't mean he doesn't have a free will. And if the devil, who can do nothing but evil, nevertheless sins voluntarily, can it be said that man sins less voluntarily because he is under a necessity of sinning? If God must do good, and he is, has a free will acting and doing good, and man, fallen in his sinfulness, must do evil and has a free will in doing what is evil, you see, you can't have one without the other. If you're going to deny that man has a free will because he has to do evil, then you have to deny that God has a free will because he has to do good. I think that's an important point. Now, these verses, Romans 9, 17 and 18, they're very difficult because they seem to lend support to perhaps the most hated doctrine. You thought you know, unconditional election was tough. But these verses actually seem to lend some support to a doctrine that is even more hated than the doctrine of unconditional election, and, and that is the doctrine of double predestination. Let's talk a little bit about the doctrine of double predestination. The doctrine is this, and I'm not saying I believe it, I'm just presenting the doctrine, okay? The doctrine is this. Not only does God elect and choose who is going to be saved, but God also elects and predestines those who are going to eternal punishment to eternal destruction. Most people who will accept the doctrine of God choosing and appointing and being sovereign over salvation will be hesitant to take the, the next logical step, so to speak, and say, well, then God also predetermines, foreordains, predestines those who are going to eternal destruction. This is double predestination. Predestination to heaven, predestination to hell. Most people do not like that idea, to say the least. Now, when Paul says he hardens whomever he wills, it seems like he's getting pretty close to that doctrine of double predestination if you just want to be honest with the text. Here's a couple of things to keep in mind. And uh, I appreciate what Douglas Moo wrote on this. These verses and the verses that follow show that Paul was himself very familiar with this kind of hostile reaction. There's a couple of things to keep in mind. God's hardening of the heart of sinners is an action directed against human beings who are already in rebellion against God's righteous rule. So when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it's not like Pharaoh started off neutral. It's not like Pharaoh was maybe good, maybe bad, and then God steps in and pushes him over to the bad side. That's not the doctrine. That's not biblical. Pharaoh was bad. He was evil. He was in rebellion against God before God ever sent Moses to him. And so God, in hardening Pharaoh's heart, he's just confirming him in the position that he was already in, although... To be fair to the language of Scripture, he's not just confirming him, but he's solidifying him in that position. He's solidifying him in that position. God does not start off with neutral people. God starts off with 
evil and wicked people who deserve his judgment, who deserve his wrath. And that's why God can be merciful to whomever he wills. If he wants to be merciful to a sinner, he can be merciful to a sinner. But if he wants to harden the heart of that sinner, he can do so because he's not treating anyone unfairly. He is treating them according to justice. Now, when God hardens a heart, this is different in some respects from God showing mercy. They are not exactly parallel. One is creating a new heart and a new state. One is just further moving someone down the line of a state that they were already in, but making it worse. And so it is worse to be a hardened-hearted sinner than to be a sinner with a less hard heart. That is a worse position to be in. And God is responsible in some sense, if language has meaning, for putting Pharaoh in a worse position than he would have been if God had not hardened his heart. But he was already in a bad position and he got into a further bad position that was right and fair and just because of God's sovereign choice. Well, like I said, these doctrines are difficult. I'm doing my best to present what the Scripture says and to give us time to think about it, process it. And it's not a doctrine that I expect everyone to rejoice in. It's one that we can sometimes kick against, struggle with, wrestle with, like the doctrine of eternal punishment. I'm not comfortable with the doctrine of eternal punishment. I don't like it, but it's there. Eternal conscious torment is something that is unthinkable. We had a bonfire, and we forced one of you into that bonfire for just a moment. That would be extremely tortuous. And to think of having an experience like that that never ends, with no hope of respite, I don't see how I could be comfortable with that doctrine. But I believe it's what the Scripture says. And truth isn't determined by what I'm comfortable with. Truth is determined by the Word of God. Thy Word is truth. And so we wrestle with these things, we talk about these things, we debate these things, but each one of us is responsible to pursue the truth and to submit ourselves to the Word of God. May God give us the strength to do so.